Welcome back to the Nuestro South podcast. This is where we talk about being Latinos. Latinas. No, Latinx. In the South. This is for us, y'all. The history in this episode is based on the book Corazón de Dixie by Julie M. Wise. I'm Axel. I'm Daisy. And I'm Brian. And we're Latino students in the South, and we are your hosts. Now, to start today, let's start with Las Trailas. Las Trailas. If you are from the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> They're the tights with the flat roof, angled roof, single wide, double wide, extra long, and you can get, <laughs> even get them with a porch. So, growing up in the South, it's almost a rite of passage that you either lived in a trailer park or knew someone, some friend, some family member who had one. And even buying one, comprar una, era un sueño. Now, today our episode brings our conversation to the current reality of many immigrants face in this country. As always, we will be focusing on the story of the South, but our latest topic brings us to Charlotte, North Carolina, and the rise of cities and suburbs across the area. In previous episodes, we have shared stories of early immigrants in New Orleans, immigrant sharecroppers in the Mississippi Delta, and braceros in Arkansas, with our last episode covering the farm workers of Georgia. Today's conversation loops in the current state of immigrant service workers throughout the South, which are construction workers that built these cities, the service workers that clean our schools, houses, and hotels, and those who cook our food. Now, to start off, we have a story that Daisy's going to share about one of these people. So, yes, I'm going to talk about an immigrant named Angelica. And this is a pseudonym for an undocumented woman who moves to Union County, um, the suburbs of Charlotte, in 2000. She was born to a family of nine in Copala, Guerrero, in, in 1977. She marries a man from a nearby rancho before the age of 20. Um, after having two kids in M Mexico, she persuades her husband to move to the U.S. together. So in 2000, they do so, and they move driven by a desire to provide more for their kids by acquiring this sort of middle-class purchasing power. And they indeed, they arrive and they do achieve more purchasing power than they had in Mexico, they're able to pursue affordable homes in a tr good trailer park, um, good public education by strategically picking what trailer park they move into, and um, shopping centers, services that are also all pursued by middle-class whites. If you think about it, affordable homes, good public education, and shopping centers, these are things that immigrants like Angelica and her family were pursuing, but things that, you know, are white middle-class people have also been in the pursuit of and they might be the more commonly thought of beneficiaries of these types of services. Um, so we're also in a way talking about what the dream would be for someone who, who is not in the United States and wants to immigrate to the United States. I mean, I think we, if if you ever heard stories of people who immigrated, they always remember anyone that visited from like the U.S., always had these things they bring, right? Or mm. these things that they send. Yeah. So it's something that probably starts already in their country before immigrating here. I know uh, my uncle, even when I was a little kid, he sent this uh, this suitcase, really. When you were in... When I was in Honduras. Okay. Honduras. When I was in Honduras, he sent this suitcase, and that suitcase had, like, a lot of little clothes, shoes, and that was that's always in my mind. And that same suitcase we brought with us when we immigrated to oh the United God. States. So, so yeah, so I think it's 
you know, what you're saying in terms of buying all these things or having all these things, it, it started for me and my family started there too. Uh, so that's interesting. It's kind of how like the, the idea that in the United States, there's an increased purchasing power is kind of like that message gets sent over because when you're like in these home countries and you mm -hmm. see that those in your family or those from your town that did like decide to move do have that like slight increase in purchasing power where they're able to purchase a little bit more and even like send it back to you it's kind of like i guess a way of passing that message along it's like okay like these are the sorts of things that we're pursuing well, here that, you can, get that here. you can get here yeah like even if it's small little items like trinkets and things like that but that you wouldn't have access to or the ability to purchase like in, in those places yeah, yeah is there any of that in your family brian uh yeah so for me ha sort of on the other end like uh my family is usually one sending over things yeah, to honduras yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah um so i would uh and it used to be things that my mom just like deemed i didn't need anymore <laughs> it was like clothes bikes toys um and uh uh, one summer, I actually went to Honduras, and I see th this kid who I barely even know. He's my cousin somehow, and um, he's riding my bike. And I'm like, that's <laughs> mine. Like, what's going on? And, like, um, now thinking back on that, it's, like, this really weird thing where, like, um, for most people, like, born in the U.S., uh, going to, like, different countries is, like, their vacation. Mm. But for, like, my mom and my family, it's, like, going back home. And, like, I've I've never really had any way of, like, thinking that – like what that exactly meant because um, like as i was little that was like a success that like uh we could go to honduras um for our vacation quote unquote um and then head back to what was like my home at the time and uh yeah like um it was always like those little things that i just like really didn't think about growing up uh so it's sort of like nice seeing that now and like realizing all like the background things yeah so Angelica, so she's here. She can purchase more. She can do more. She can get more for her family. Um, what else is part of her story? Well, we're talking about, you know, coming, going from one country, which is like for Angelica and for a lot of like these immigrants, like the place where you're born, the place where you have most of your family and deciding that the increased like purchasing power, the increased um like opportunities that you can provide for your kids is a good enough reason to move to another country and we're seeing that yes like she does um gain that power to be able to purchase her own home even if it is a trailer like we you talked about at the beginning like that's the dream come true for a lot of like um these immigrant families and she's able to send her kids to to relatively like good public schools but we have to kind of like take a step back and think what did what did she give up for this increased purchasing power and she kind of like gave up being a citizen of a country that acknowledged like her citizenship yeah. so you know being a citizen of mexico she decides to leave and now goes to this country where she's seen as a non well she's a non-citizen and with that comes losing a lo lots of rights as defined by like the community like around her so she she steps into this different kind of like existence and at the same time she's not the only one coming in and pursuing these things and as we know there's already like middle class whites who think that you know they're being threatened by 
immigrants like Angelica and her family that are saying, you know, we deserve access to good public schools too. Like our kids should go to those schools too. We also want these like social benefits or, you know, and by social benefits, I mean just like the riding like the bus to school and being able to purchase at the same Walmart that you're like, you're purchasing Mm -hmm. your like groceries at. So it kind of creates a sort of clash almost. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about that context. So, um, we're, the time period we're talking about here is I mentioned earlier that it, it's the now, but the question is when this now starts. And so we're talking about a period that starts in the early two, 2000s when we have uh, definitely more of the emergence of like cities and suburbs in the south. So we're talking places like Charlotte, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, where you have more need for some of these at the start, a lot of construction work that's being done a lot of rebuilding a lot of revamping and so this is important because previously we were talking about pro-immigrant conservatism in georgia Mm -hmm. and so a shift happened and what we see today in terms of like the south's stronghold anti-immigrant kind of mentality perspective rhetoric uh started then so kind of can you give you touched a bit bit Mm -hmm. on it but can you give some examples of like how this emerges so yeah so like i said the clash that's resulting from these two groups so we have like mexican working class families and then like the white middle class there's a clash because there's this perceived notion of um like a scarcity of these different things like there's a scarcity of good like um affordable housing or like a scarcity of good public schools and so because of this perceived scarcity that you know somehow these things are going to run out and the clash between these two groups it spurs the adoption of policy that um echoes like anti-immigrant backlash that we've already seen in places like california so um i feel like a lot of times we think about the conservatism that we have um today that we've grown up with maybe like seeing as we've come into like our young adulthood and we think oh well how could this not be happening in the south like it's so obvious like we're in the south we have this history of like jim crow segregation like it just makes sense Mm -hmm. that this is the way that we'd be treating like immigrants like it makes sense even though it's unfair like it makes sense that this is just kind of like the legacy of the south but at the same time it's important to take into consideration that a lot of um the policies that kind of like start springing up in um like 2005 are guided by anti-immigrant policies that had already been in place in california and a good example is for example um in like 2005 to 2007 because of like all the backlash that was going on between these two competing like interests um the fact that we had 9-11 happen in 2001 and um just kind of like the rising sentiments we see that undocumented immigrants lose access to north carolina state-issued driver's licenses and a lot of immigration politics take a turn for the worse. Yeah, um, and also just to, like, add on to that, because uh, it actually reminded me, um, well, first of, like, the idea of, like, um, uh, pro-immigrant conservative changing to, like, this rhetoric that we see today, um, with most migrant farm workers, uh, what we're used to seeing is them given being given, like, the bare minimum uh, for their work in, like, living conditions and working conditions. And now, um, like, while back then, like, uh, they had to suffer through that, um, and now they're being, like, expected to do the same, um, even though, like, uh, 
by building, by like offering all this construction labor um, and all the things that basically help run the city, like shouldn't it be like okay for them to like claim their part of what they work so hard to achieve? Uh, and then the other thing you reminded me of um, with the whole driver's license thing, uh, the Real ID Act of uh, 2005 um, is this thing that I found about like pretty recently. Uh, it was like sort of kind of a response to like the uh, 9-11 thing and just like adding another extra layer of security to um, <coughs> to like our IDs. Um, and like for my driver's license, literally the difference between this one and my new real ID one that's coming in is like a star on the um, on the corner. And it's supposed to allow me to travel domestically, visit nuclear power plants or like military bases for whatever reason. Um, and it just seemed like a very unnecessary like obstacle because when I showed up to the DMV, all the information they asked for was like a birth certificate, social security card. Um, and those are like the same exact things I brought to get my license in the first place. So um, back to the whole... Uh, thing about like licenses being taken away it just seems like there was just extra obstacles put in the way um solely based off of like uh like this false rhetoric um that uh migrant workers had to like that had no stake or claim in like all the things that they helped build um i like in north carolina like whenever undocumented immigrants lost access to those driver's licenses. I think it's important to note that there was a time when they did have access to them and that even though like at now present day they still don't have access to them it might seem like that's the norm and that's the way that things should be but the fact that changing politics is what kind of like made the shift from access to no access in the way that it's not that the procedures themselves were different for getting them it was just that like Back then, you could submit, um, like, an IRS-issued um, taxpayer identification number um, instead of a Social Security number whenever you were um, submitting all of the paperwork. And then through a series of policies um, that take place in, like, the early 2000s, by 2007, they crack down on, like, the fact that you have to have a Social Security number. Stop accepting the taxpayer identification number given by the IRS. And that's how they managed to kind of like systematically ex exclude undocumented immigrants. And I think that if you don't know kind of like the history of that, you kind of just grow up maybe accepting, oh, this is the norm. This is like what happens when you're undocumented. And now we'd like to take a little break and thank our sponsors. This podcast is produced by Ricky Hurtado, Eric Valera, and Julie Wise with generous sponsorship from the Whiting Foundation, the University of Oregon College of Arts and Sciences, and Latinx Ed. Edited by Dorian Gomez. Tortilla myths. Tortilla myths. Okay, oh so gosh. Brian, you started off because I have one but, too. So we'll do I mean, I. I don't have any tortillas. Okay, that's what I'm saying. You started oh. off. You asked us. Oh, wait. Oh. So, funny story. <laughs> right, yeah, uh, funny stories. Um, do you all happen to have any stories about uh, tortillas or any myths attached to them? Oh, I have plenty of tortilla Tell stories. Dígame, dígame. Mm, a ver. <laughs> pues, I guess one of the ones that I learned from an early age, like, from I remember being, like, 
four or five or like five, yeah like probably like five years old in mexico watching um my older cousins um cook tortillas on in el, in el comal how do you say in the griddle or whatever it's called and and um my mom told me um uh, mira like la tortilla de doris este se está inflando so like her tortilla was like um what, how do you say that it was inflating. like <laughs> <inflating>. <laughs> it was like rising yeah, and rising. she yeah it was like rising and my mom was like you know what that means and i was like what does that mean and she told me like apparently when you're like cooking tortillas if the tortilla starts like inflating like getting puffy it uh -huh. means that you're ready to get married because wow. like it's like um a sign of like how good you are at making them how, how old were you i was like five gotta teach them young so what i would hear lots of times which is kind of just a more quirky thing um so if La tortilla uh, se quemaba. If it got burnt, well, I was told that you would eat it because eating burnt tortillas would take away your fear. Se te iba el miedo if you mm. ate it when it was burnt. And so I was like, I mean, might as well. <laughs> but I don't know. That's a myth that was always that's, in my mind, stayed until now. That's like really heavy metal. What? <laughs> it's like eat the ashes of the tortilla. Yeah, I feel like that's very like you could write a poem about that or something. Like Me? Um I wanted to ask you both, is there um specifically about what we're talking about? Because I feel like the difference between this topic and the previous episodes are that um unless you have some connection to growing up in a rural area, growing up with rural farm work, um, this is definitely kind of the norm that people come to get attracted to cities. I remember like my whole family came to like New York when they first immigrated and literally like the second destination that like once they got tired and fed up of New York city was Charlotte. And and that's how, you know, I, I ended up in a, in a, in a similar area moving from New York down to uh, the South. And so I want to ask you kind of like personal experience of like what it was to like, what are the differences in the South? Like, is it just that all of it is the same or is there a difference where you live in one type of like city in the South, let's say like Charlotte, or it, is there a difference between the rural and the suburbs and, or the, or the suburbs and the cities? Oh my God. I think there's definitely a difference because in like the rural rural parts of the south where there's no sidewalks where it's just like two-way like back roads like country mm -hmm. roads something a policy that takes away access to driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants is huge it makes all the difference there's no public transportation as an to use as an alternative like you kind of have to say well i i have to drive to work because if i don't drive to work then How am I going to, like, sustain, like, myself and my family? So there's definitely, that's, like, I think one of the biggest differences that I've that I've noticed, the fact that everything is just so much more just ge geographically, like, spaced out. Everything yeah. is so much further. Something, like, when you need to, for example, go to your um, home country's, like, consulate to get an identification, you have to drive so much further everything though there's not as many even like nonprofits like in the area a lot of nonprofits tend to kind of like gather around in big um cities like charlotte or like in the raleigh like durham um, area in north carolina and just like 
they always tend to kind of like be in those places and so if you're in the south and you're in more like rural areas there's not as much um like non-profits public transportation not as much like activism going on as there might be in a lot of the other um more populated places so i definitely think from what i've seen that there is a big difference yeah i honestly wow i didn't hadn't thought of that before um and like from right off the bat like uh I think the main thing being like population, uh, because like, of course, all these resources, uh, major resources are going to be in places with higher populations to be able to get to more people. Um, but that also means that everything is like a lot closer together and there's more of like everything. Um, like, uh, I know in Chapel Hill, like I only know of one, maybe two DMVs. Uh, and then in like the Durham County area, like three, four, maybe, um uh but like with that there's also more schools um there's also like uh just uh i guess like i want to say media wise i feel like with like a lot of the activism that's going on now um it's a lot easier to like become aware of the thing that's going around in your society versus like in the rule like you're more focused on like whatever you're taking care of at home like uh, for my family, like, having, like, a farm outside, we have, like, chickens, and chickens don't need, like, an ID. <laughs> or, like, maybe there's a vet, but, like, we let them, like, live off the land. Um, yeah, and, like, there is, like, that feeling that you have to, you don't have to take care of, like, the huge bureaucracy of, like, everything. Um, while in the city, it's, like, all around you. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Like, the what you mentioned about there being more schools and then also more opportunities for you to maybe kind of like realize what's going on like around you i feel like one like in the rural areas of the south there's there's less schools and they're more like spaced out so and then two that comment about like finding out like i feel like if you're in a very very rural community where it's kind of it kind of seems like like that's it and there's not a lot of um you know access to more like liberal like minded like teachers or um like education materials that kind of like introduce you to words like like social justice or to like words like oppression or different things like that it's like how how are you supposed to kind of like learn about your circumstances as and you know like as related to your identity in the south like i feel like a lot of that education comes a lot later or it might come if and when you decide to leave that particular community mm. yeah yeah especially when like uh if your family's like now like even if there's any like from like 1910s 1920s like if their generations are like staying in this rural area like um if they're not, like, aware of the laws that are controlling, like, the state or the country, like, they're only really learning to, like, survive and live in, like, their one area. Yeah. Um, I think you all bring some um, good points in terms of, you know, this is when, when, when our stories come in. This is when our stories uh, connect into the whole narrative of what we've been talking about. More than a century of immigrants and, and in some cases, we mentioned Mexicanos specifically because they're some of the more populous and larger groups. But this is the story of many immigrants from Latin America coming in. And so and and definitely given that it's 
2000s, like I think a lot of those who are listening can connect to some positions or, or some concepts that we're like mentioning. And, and some of that is schools, some of that is driver's licenses. And some of that is, you know, realizing that you probably have to engage in some way with the political system, with the political atmosphere in order to, you know, have some say in what happens to you or what happens to your family. And so I'll share a little bit of kind of what I went through uh, when I was younger, but I want to hear from you too as well. So, you know, one of my first things that I remembered about like what was going to happen with like with immigrants or whatever, it wasn't like 2005 or 2006 when there were some like actual big immigrant marches or days without immigrants. It was later on. Um, I vaguely remember Obama's election, but 2012 when it was like Obama and Romney, like I remember <laughs> that in that time, like I was like actually really paying attention. And, you know, I was like, actually, I think at the time I was maybe living in a thriller, <laughs> just, just looping it all together. Um, but yeah, like it was, it was then. And I guess at this point I'm like 14 that I was definitely more conscious of what was happening, but I was living in a, in a County that was definitely much more conservative. Uh, it was 2008, 2010 that everyone who was an immigrant knew if there's a checkpoint, message people call people don't go through here don't go through there and whenever someone was stopped everybody knew and and you know we were part involved with the church and and people in in the church really was the first time i saw like i guess organizing or getting together to you know pay for someone's bond pay for mm -hmm. someone's bail but but yeah that's kind of what i grew up with and it all shifted um moving to more of a city my my high school environment shifted and so but but a lot of that awareness started happening when you know this big election in 2012 was happening and eventually DACA, which is kind of now what has transitioned to who I am now as a student, as an activist. So I wanted to ask like, when are those moments of realizations for you all to like start engaging in this? I think like, I agree that it, I, it took a while for me, obviously like I'm not gonna, despite the fact that I was feeling the effects of, you know, being from like an immigrant community like knowing that there was certain people like in like um our churches or like in our social circles that kind of like um were navigating um not having like being exploited like by wage theft or like not having not being able to take certain roads because of checkpoints and like just me growing up with that like in my family as well like it's like I knew those things were happening but it's kind of like at one point do you connect the dots and say like hey, like, this is tied to, like, laws and, like, politicians and politics and, and maybe there's something that I can do even if I'm not able to vote yet. Yeah. And so for me, I think it was um in high school, I started kind of, like, taking more, um paying more attention to what I saw on TV, to the mm -hmm. news and stuff. But the moment that I remember that I actually, like, like was feeling like took action like on my own was um my senior year I will make my junior year but mostly like my senior year where there was um a proposed like bill that would um like prohibit like law enforcement from accepting um identifications from like from consulates like from so for example like if you're Mexican and you don't have a North Carolina issued ID 
but you have like your Mexican like consulate ID and you get stopped, pulled over and they ask you for identification, that Mexican consulate ID is not going to be valid. Like they um they wouldn't be able to accept that as a valid form of ID and so if you fail to present like a val- a valid form of ID then they can arrest you. So for me it was kind of like, "Oh my gosh, like this is going to affect like literally like so many people that I know." And I started um calling like representatives um passing along like scripts to like my friends on Facebook like to call and to say that we didn't want this passed I like wrote letters and had people like sign on to them so that's whenever I kind of like started engaging in a lot of this um you know like low commitment like it's not like I was going into their offices and doing anything but just kind of like realizing that there was a way for me to get involved in in that process wow <clears throat> i for one uh I can admit that, like, I feel like I joined this scene, like, really, really late. Like, I'd like to say I became, like, aware of it in high school, but only really started being active in, like, uh, in college. Um, Like, growing up, uh, I was, like, really sheltered from, like, everything um, that had to do with, like, uh, being an immigrant. Like, um, this is, like, this repetition, like, you're American and they can't do anything to you. Uh, Mm. But that wasn't, like, the same privilege for all the people that I knew. Uh, if like we were ever pulled over, um, like for us, the script was actually like, uh, like if the police officer were to say like, oh, you were driving without your seatbelt, make sure that everyone in the car like repeatedly says like, no, that's not right. Um, and like, not that that happens all the time, but we sort of have like, like unspoken rules about like how we're supposed to act around police. Um, not like we've done anything wrong, but like always remember that you're innocent. Um, and, like, uh, as a kid, like, being inside and watching cartoons, uh, I would not have been aware of, like, um, all, like, any marches going on outside, uh, or, like, community meetings, um, like you hear about in, like, um, the Corazon de Dixie book. Uh, so I never really thought of, um, of, like, my family or friends having, like, targets on their backs in any way, but more, like, timers of, mm. like, how long um, how long can they go without, like, having an incident? Like, can they wake up, go to work, come back, and see their family? Um, because that's all, like, you really want. Uh, that's, like, most people's only goals. Uh, when they do things like um, make forms of identification, like, unvalid uh, for, like, the most, like, mediocre reasons it's sort of like they're not really asking for you to prove your identity they're asking for you to be like to prove that you're like american and american only um which is like unfair in so many ways uh and like it does spark up like the need for like more people to be vocal about this and like call senators and representatives so uh yeah yeah you know that there's definitely like a a change in like the nature of, of, of what is done and, and, and what is done. And a lot of that brings in, you know, more more recent events, including Dreamer movement, DACA movement. A lot of that brings how how much, how much of, like, I guess you could say our people are here uh, in terms of we talk about, we refer to schools a few times in this episode, and our schools, our, our public schools and, and much of the South, We'll have a lot of immigrant ch- ch- children of immigrant and also immigrant children as well. And so it's a changing landscape. And but just as like so socially and culturally, the South is changing. 
um, it was changed to a very negative, a very anti-immigrant position 15, 20 years ago. And so, and, and so there is, there is a need for a reaction to it. And, uh, you know, for some of us, it is, you know, direct action. It is plugging into some of these movements, but for someone like Angelica, which we talked about, um, it was really just coming in, working, and doing the best you could. And I think what you said, Brian, was was like critical. It is almost about surviving day to day and hoping for the next generation to be able to do something. So, for me, as a as you know, one of those kids who my mother you know took care of and who's has done so much and continues doing so much to keep pushing forward here. Like my question sometimes is, what do I do? What do I do to help push things forward? Um, you don't have to. Sometimes you don't have to do some extravagant big thing. Sometimes you can just, you know, support those around you, those close to you. Uh, you can work locally, but it is a decision that each individual must take because it, it basically puts yourself vulnerable in many different ways. Yeah, I think just existing, like you were saying, just like getting up every morning and doing what you what you're doing every day is just in itself. Like, you know, not everyone needs to be doing the same kind of like on the streets or calling this and that like it it there's a place for everyone like in different ways to kind of like say we're here um and we're surviving you know yeah and lastly i just wanted to share kind of some closing remarks uh what we talked about you know today uh, brings in our stories of any of you who are listening as well and it also brings up this question of what we talked about with with daisy mentioned and how Apparently, there's a fight for resources between our community, our immigrant community, and those who you would say claim that this is their place, this is their schools, this is their communities. With quotes. With quotes, with claim. And so you know, there is a level of entitlement there. And so the question is, like, you know, how do we how do we combat that without having to say, oh, we're just we're the good immigrants. Oh, we just work. Oh, we just do good. And and we've spoken this with about this in regards to like the general idea of DACA recipients. Mm -hmm. Oh, they go to school or oh, they work or oh, they're young, they speak English. But that is in a way giving into this notion that people talk about, Oh, you should be worthy about it, or you should be able to do all of this. You should be able to always contribute. Mm -hmm. And the immigrant is always being told you have to contribute. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every time we contribute something like being those service workers, being those farm workers, that the bar just gets pushed up a little bit more mm -hmm. and a little bit more. And we're never, fully fully actually you know worthy or <laughs> able to actually get what we someone deserve so that is a question for you all you know when how much do we have to do to be worth you know being accepted in this place and how long do we have to continue this like lack of resources war between you know newcomers who have been here like over 20 years probably and then those who claim <laughs> that this is their place this is their land so thank you all for listening let us know what you think about this episode please rate us five stars on apple podcast and follow us on instagram twitter and like our facebook page linked on the description below thank you everyone bye bye